0: Hello, I'm Ian Skillicorn of Wyndham Books, publishing the work of Ursula Bloom for a new generation as part of a long overdue revival of this very talented and special writer. In this series, I've been bringing you Ursula Bloom in her own words. Previously, we've learned about Ursula's life as a young woman in the Great War and how she broke into the book and newspaper worlds. This is episode five. Now we rejoin Ursula for the final time as she investigates two very famous murder cases in her new role as a Fleet Street crime reporter. This is Ursula Bloom, A Life in Words.
1: I loved working for the Sunday dispatch and going to the office, but I was no nearer reporting and I still wanted it. Whenever I approached Charles about it, he turned it down. In some ways he looked on me as being his lucky star, I believe, for he commissioned other serials from time to time, but he would not give me a reporting job. I wrote Hitler's Ava, which was a most enthralling serial to write, his idea, not mine, and Ruth on the Crimean War, which succeeded Emma and was a very great success. I was putting up the circulation of the dispatch, but all this brought no nearer the dream lying in my heart, the desire to turn to crime. Charles knew of it and said he did not believe I could do it. You don't look right for it. Does that matter if I feel right for it? I asked. Strangely enough, in the end, it was a serial story which actually got me where I wanted to be. It was the story of The Girl Who Loved Crippen. When we discussed it in the office, Charles, leaning on his desk, said, it is, after all, still the greatest murder of the century. If Crippen did it. You can't possibly think that he didn't. I certainly can, and do. I should be very chary of labelling him as a murderer. But he was condemned and hanged for it. I know. Maybe he is still not guilty. Then I asked, I suppose that poor girl is dead. You mean Ethel Lenive? Yes. He said, she's disappeared into the limbo of lost things and without a doubt she will never turn up again. Would you like to do the story? I propose to call it The Girl Who Loved Crippen. I'd like to do it. Murder interests me so very much, I said slowly. I did not know it then but with those words I drew the bolt on the door which had been locked between me and the happy experience of reporting. I drew it right back. When I walked out of Northcliffe House that summer's afternoon into the noisy street beyond, I was face to face with a dream that was coming true. Something had happened to me. I had read about the Crippen case at home armed with the faithful news of the world as provided by the maid. The case was being kept from me by my parents, and I, well aware of this, was only too keen to know more. Now I remembered it as a straightforward romance of Dr. Hawley Harvey Crippen, a small, unattractive little man who held an American degree and practiced dentistry at Number 59 Albion House, New Oxford Street. He was married to Cora Crippen, a music hall lady with large bust and bottom who acted under the pseudonym of Belle Elmore, but was short of bookings. Their married life was hectic. She was hysterical and blousy. She had affairs with other men. Crippen had rescued her from the streets of New York, where she worked as a prostitute. Her atrocious behavior made the shy man shrink from the outrageous scenes she made, and he became even more attracted to his nice little secretary. It was rare to have a girl doing this work at the time, for it was thought to be a rather fast job, which meant that young Ethel started off with every man's hand against her. Belle Elmore disappeared. Ethel moved into the doctor's house at 39 Hilldrop Crescent. Later she went with the doctor to a banquet given by the Music Hall Ladies Guild in High Holborn. The doctor found her a piece of jewellery to wear that his wife had left behind her. He said she had bolted and gone to the States, and he took Ethel to the party. Those who knew Belle Elmore were fairly sure that she might have cleared off with someone else, as he said, but they were quite certain that she would never have left behind her a smart piece of jewellery. She loved showing off and dressed up like a perennial Christmas tree the ladies talked. The police were told, and inquiries began, which was agony for the shy doctor and worrying for the girl. In the middle of all this, the two of them also disappeared, leaving England as father and son. The one weak point in the proof of their innocence seems to lie in the fact that Ethel allowed him to cut off her hair to make her become a boy. At that period of history, it was considered to be almost indecent for a girl to have short hair, even if it was to escape as Master Robinson with her father. I believe that she would have had scruples about this. Had he by then told her a little? Did she know that they stood in peril of their lives? They received a message in the SS Montrose, one of the few steamers at that time to be fitted with the new wireless. The captain believed that the two of them were bogus, and he wirelessed home, believe Crippen and Leneve aboard. Inspector Dew rushed out to the Hudson River, and they were arrested off Quebec. Brought to England, they were tried for their lives. The doctor was condemned to death and hanged at Pentonville Prison in the October. Ethel Leneve, gallantly defended by the famous F.E. Smith, was liberated. These were the plain facts of the case, the blank story. Digging into it, I got more, and I had to cover miles to get it. I met relations of Dr. Crippen's patients, and from all of them learnt that he had always been kindness itself. They spoke highly of him and were absorbingly interesting. As a matter of fact, I never met anyone who did not like him. Usually a murderer has an unattractive personality, but of Crippen, everyone said that he was the kindest man alive. Certainly, Hawley Crippen had been a very kind man indeed, and I told Charles so. You seem to know a lot about murder, Charles said, when the first five installments were in the office and we were talking about it as a whole. I told him that I had always wanted to be a crime reporter. I wanted it deeply, almost passionately, and had forever found the road to this blocked to me. Charles was sure that I should not really like it. Such awful things turned up. One met such shocking people, and I did not look that sort of person. That's what they all tell me, I said, but there was a pain in my heart. The first installment of The Girl Who Loved Crippen came out with a lot of the usual publicity and my name on every poster. As is always done before publication, our solicitor read the manuscript for libel, which is a vital necessity. I much hope that if Leneve was still alive, the story would not pain her, but somehow I did not think that she could be hurt, for so many stories had gone the rounds about her. On the Tuesday afternoon, my telephone rang, and Charles's voice came from the other end. There's been a spot of bother. A male relative of Miss Leneve has turned up in the office, and he's complaining about the serial. We are clear, of course, but I thought I'd better warn you in case he comes your way. Send him round, I begged. He's a bit formidable. Does he know where Miss Leneve is? Yes, he does, and he is being nasty about it. If I could find her, it would be a scoop, wouldn't it? Charles saw this. How do you propose doing it? I almost implored him to send round this man to see me, his wife as well, for she had come with him. I did not care how rude they were. Rudeness has never killed anyone yet. Charles did not want to do this, but I realized that I was fighting for that door just set ajar, and at all costs I had got to push it wide open for me. In the end, he agreed. This man knew Ethel and Eve and could help me if he would. Very probably he would not do a thing at first. I expected this, but I was going into a fight to win. I prepared the decks for action. This was the first time I had been given the chance to come up against something really big, and not for the world was I missing it. I had waited too long for opportunity. Round came the man and his wife, and my husband was in charge of the sherry. He's good at this. I may be a teetotaler, but I should never underestimate the power of drink to loosen tongues. The man was a working man in the late fifties, I should have said. He was connected with the railways and plainly very angry about my cereal. At Northcliffe House he had already discovered that his mission was fairly hopeless, for he could not stake a claim. At heart he must have known that they were right and be disappointed. This was not the little gold mine that he had anticipated. In my best district-visiting manner, I soothed them down, explaining that I never wanted to hurt anybody's feelings, which was true. I had not thought that Ethel Neve was alive. "'But she is,' said he indignantly. "'She lives in outer London.' then he stopped himself dead. Tactfully, I tried to get some idea of the neighbourhood and so narrow down the area, but I drew the blank I should have expected. I did honestly feel that this poor woman had been through sufficient pain already to be spared any further trouble, and suggested that I wrote a note of apology to her. If I did this, would he post it for me? He would, he said, for the sherry had slightly rosied the scene, and had made matters more amiable as I intended. Now my main dilemma was how to keep in touch with him. Once he and his wife walked out of my flat, they could go right out of my world, and I should lose all touch with them. They represented the lifeline. I had a bright idea. I said that I thought he could give me a certain amount of information and assistance with the final installments, if he would agree to this, The editor would undoubtedly pay him for his good offices, and he cheered up considerably at the idea. For the first time, he saw ahead what he wanted. Not for the world would I have broken his heart by confessing that the final instalments had been in Northcliffe House for some weeks, and the type was set up. None but a fool starts to print an unfinished serial, for anything could happen. He was now on my side. The colour of the scene had changed a lot. He cheered up and said that he would help me in any way he could, and I must admit that he kept his word most loyally. I left him and his wife with my husband and more sherry and went into my writing room to telephone to Charles. I said, they're both here, and now that he has got his trouble off his chest, I think he is doing fine. Miss Ledeve is alive, and she lives somewhere in outer London. He sees her on occasions, but I have the idea that they do not get on well together. I must not lose contact with him and need some reason for seeing him when and as I want. I have suggested that he assist me with details for the final instalments. Fair enough. How long do you think it'll take? If I hurry, I'll lose the lot. He has got to like me. And when he and his wife finish here, I am taking them back home in my car. I could hear Charles laughing at the other end. And I always thought that fiction was your métier. Well, well, well. I took him home and we parted fast friends
0: at his gate. It's London in 1934. Anne Clements is stuck in a boring job and thinks nothing exciting will ever happen to her. Then a sudden stroke of luck changes everything. A Mediterranean cruise opens Anne's eyes to people and experiences far removed from her sheltered existence. But as she blossoms, the biggest question is, can there be any going back? Wonder Cruise is a sharply observed, charming novel by Ursula Bloom. The Daily Telegraph said, With every book, she adds something to her reputation. Wonder Cruise is published by Wyndham Books and is available from Amazon as a paperback and e-book. Search for Wonder Cruise by Ursula Bloom and join Anne Clements on her journey of a lifetime.
1: Miss Leneve answered the letter and was extremely kind over it all. The letter was posted on to me by her relative, so that got me no nearer to the district. From the first, I had been sure that she was a very nice woman. She had left England the day Crippen died, working in Canada in a typing pool, but she returned under another name in 1916 to nurse her dying sister. I wrote to her from time to time, and she replied, our mutual friend posting the letters. He told me much. Ethel had married a fellow worker in the firm where both of them were employed after her return. He knew her only under the adopted name. Now married some years, she had two children and a grandson. The amazing fact was that none of these people knew that she had ever played her part in perhaps the most famous murder that we have ever had, and she wished to stay anonymous. I concentrated on her husband and got a fairly good description of him. He was small. I had his exact height, light-haired, with a death aid, and he wore poce-nez. I knew the time of the train he caught every night, and the London terminus from which it started, but I could not discover his destination. Having got this far, Charles decided to employ a tech, and I left the office inwardly fuming. I had broken down the first difficulties, and all I needed was time. But the editor is the editor. Three weeks later, the tech had discovered nothing, while his services were costing the earth and Charles was disappointed. ''Let me have the job back,'' I begged. ''You'll never get anything. It's all too vague.'' But I took it on again, for now I was doing real reporting, and I'd get it or die in the effort. Almost immediately everything changed. ''I was writing to Miss Lenive and getting letters back when she sent me an unusual letter.'' She and her relative had never got on well, and she wished he was not acting as a go-between. It would be easier for both of us if I sent to her care of a friend. She gave me a name and address. Would I do this? I was highly suspicious that the address given was her own, but I must get some further clue. Within ten minutes I was back in the car, bowling off to the relative. I explained that Ethel seemed upset, he must know how funny women can be, and handed him the letter. I watched as he read it, and when he came to the name and address, he flinched. That told me everything I wanted to know. I came out of the house realising that this was the last time, and I rang up Charles. I think I've got her. Not the Ethel Leneve. Nobody else is much use to us, is she? Then I burst out with, I'm not going to make a mess of this. I want more jobs in the reporting line if I bring this one off, and I will bring it off. I promise you the jobs. I wrote to her and asked myself over to visit her in four days' time. She was courteous and invited me to tea. It was one of the mountain top moments of my life as I turned into that small road of dead ordinary houses to see the one woman who had never been dead ordinary. Purposely she had chosen this backcloth with which to hide her identity. She opened the door to me, and she was still bearing a resemblance to her early days. Miss Leneve? I asked. We talked in that small sitting room with a three-piece set, the tired piano, the overmantel, and the tea cloths that she herself had embroidered. She was now the simple housewife. Ethel Leneve was dead. But this woman believed, as I did, that Dr. Crippen was an innocent man. The nasty smell which haunted his house had been there during Belle Elmore's life. This was never taken up, and there was never any inquiry into previous tenants. In the case of John Christie, which I handled later, the fact that previous tenants were questioned made all the difference to the verdict. We had grown wiser with time. It is true that a pyjama sleeve was discovered amongst the debris, and that this matched the pattern of some which the doctor had in his possession but jones of holloway had sold about 20000 pairs of this particular pyjama and i should imagine that most men in the district owned one the remains a meager portion of the abdomen revealed a hernia scar with the total removal of the navel yet a woman friend who stayed at number no. 39 hilldrop crescent some few weeks before bell elmore disappeared and slept with her said that although bell had a hernia scar her navel had not been removed. She had seen it. When Ethel and Eve said, He died because he loved me, she hit the nail on the head, poor woman, and I was bitterly sorry for her. The Victorian prejudices of England hanged him, and would have hanged her if they could have done, but thank heaven they stopped short at that injustice. Further points which to me establish something towards his innocence. Are that I was told that he was the only murderer whom the governor visited on the night before execution and sat with him for nearly two hours. And he also went to the home secretary and asked for a reprieve. These men are not chicken hearted. No governor could have acted like this had he not been convinced that there was something wrong. The hyacinth? I asked her. We sometimes used it in the surgery, but he never liked it very much. When you came to the house after, after the accident, was the place in a muddle? She explained, just as he said. The bedroom looked as if Belle had packed in a hurry, cleared out the drawers and then had gone. I remember she'd thrown a torn petticoat into a corner, as if she didn't think it was worth taking with her. You thought she had gone? Yes, of course. He said so. I felt that in a way she experienced some sort of relief in talking of it and I had immense sympathy with her. I worked on the manuscript late into the night, and in the end got something which I hoped would appeal. I wanted to show how this normal happy girl, her main fault impulsiveness, had been more sinned against than sinning. Today, Dr. Crippen would not have died. I do not think that he should have died then. I had done admirably with Ethel and Eve. Now there was a lull. Suddenly, out of the blue, opportunity beckoned. Charles dropped it into my lap. I had some time before this lived at the Onslow Court Hotel, which I left when the Navy made it necessary for me to live somewhere from which I could get away quickly if my husband Robbie was moved. I still had friends there. Amongst them was a woman in the late fifties, rich and rather silly. She was the dressy kind, with diamonds which naturally advertised her financial assets. She adored having a good time. She was widowed and gaily flirtatious, and to me there is something which is always horrifying about an oldish woman of that nature. I found that she was staying at the Onslow Court some time before the Hay Affair, and when I visited her she confided in me that a most darling man, was staying there and was keen on her. Isn't it absurd? she cooed. I could hardly say that I thought it was. When I met the man, I disliked him on sight. John Hay was over vivacious and coy, with very glittering eyes, and the eyebrows rose at either end over a small protuberance. As a child, I had visited a waxwork show at Great Yarmouth and they had seen an exhibition of Murders in Wax. The man who took me round showed me that these mounds below eye-corner and brow were typical of murderers. It is something that I have never forgotten, and John Hay had them. I asked about his career, and it was difficult to find what his career was. Apparently, he had a little factory in the Crawley neighborhood, so my friend told me, and added that one of these days he was taking her down in his car to see it. Whilst she was arranging this agreeable little outing, she possibly did not appreciate how important it was for John Hay. It would have been certain death for my friend. Hay had run up a bill of about eighty pounds at the hotel, and how he contrived to do that has always puzzled me, for I lived there some years, and he had done more than I could ever have hoped to accomplish. Now the hour had arrived when it was essential for him to get money from somewhere, whatever the cost. The management had made it clear that the hotel did not keep residents who could not meet their weekly commitments. Hay was in a jam, for his funds had run out. I suppose he is the only man I have ever met who earned his living by common or garden murder, but this was what he actually did. He marked down people who had suitable assets and few relatives to make a fuss. If possible, and he had sufficient time, he managed to get himself a power of attorney to see things through in the best possible manner. He could not have done this with my friend, for she had children alive, and I suspect that this had been the very worry which had held up his activities. He had contrived to kill as many as three from a family at a time, one after the other. Then he sat back and lived on the proceeds until they were exhausted. This was a mistake. It meant that he reached the danger point of running financially dry, or almost, before he started all over again. This forced his hand. When it came to it, he could not beat about the bush and he rushed the organization side of it. My friend was obviously to be his next victim, and she, I am afraid, did not fill the role properly. The night before she was due to take this trip down to Crawley, from which she would never return, she became unwell. That night her doctor diagnosed an urgent appendix, and she was wafted into a Queensgate nursing home. Nothing could have upset Hay more. I imagine that the hotel had given him a time limit, a fairly short one, naturally, in which to pay or get out. I surmise that he became alarmed, for now he had to act quickly. The hotel was full of ageing ladies with private incomes, and he must have looked about him for someone else who was alone. He did not want relations to butt in. Mrs. Durand Deacon was living there, and he knew her. She had few visitors, living the sort of quiet, comfortable life that women like herself enjoy. She had sufficient money for her needs and amusement, but what he did not know was that she was not rich. She gave the appearance of being so. Hay suffered from the fault of many murderers. He jumped to conclusions. He guessed, rather than made sure. He did not recognize good from fake jewelry which was foolish. He asked Mrs. Durand Deacon to take the trip, and she appreciated the idea. Hay had lived in the hotel some months. Why should she have had any alarm? She was not to know that he had worked out the process of murder without a body. It is by the body that a man is caught, and was sure of himself. She got into his car, and nobody ever saw her alive again save the girl at the tea shop in Crawley. John Hay made two bad mistakes, his first being that, because he was short of a victim, he rushed the job, his second, that hotels are hotbeds of chatter, everyone talks. Opinions were split, half of them adored him, the other half loathed and suspected him. When I saw about it in the paper, I rang up a friend at the hotel, and finding that the place was in a ferment, got in touch with Charles Ede. I want to do this, if I may. I know the hotel, and can get more out of the staff than others. Please, give me the job. I was sent round. Ten minutes before I had left the flat, I looked out of my lounge window, which faces the headquarters of the South West London Police, and is, I should have said, admirably suited for a journalist. I saw John Hay walking up the steps with a woman whom I knew by sight and who had been one of Mrs. Duran Deacon's friends. I rang up the dispatch again. The lady friend returned alone to the hotel, but Hay, who was the man of the moment, had been detained for questioning. Already the news had gone the rounds. I was fairly sure that he would never come out again. Naturally, the hotel was desperately worried and hated the publicity which this had brought about. However, it could not be helped. I was received by the staff in the nice, amiable way in which they had always accepted me, and although they flatly refused to talk to other reporters, they did not place me in what they felt was an undesirable class. Hay was a Plymouth brother, the stricter side of the sect and the only child of kind parents who had been rather old to have a baby at all. They lived up north. He was a traveller and quite brazen, for now there was rumour of another woman who had once come to the hotel with him and who had disappeared. To the States, he said, and he had sold her furs and her jewellery actually to people in the hotel. The chambermaid an old friend was most helpful. From all I heard from her, the man was subject to fits of the most ghastly depression and would sit in his bedroom reading the Bible and weeping bitterly. She was scared by his peculiar moods. It struck me that he was far from normal in the pursuits that he practised. Was this some form of insanity which gradually developed? The joy of thrill? The lure of adventure? And perhaps a continuation of the boyish game of cowboys and Indians? maturing into something dangerous as the child grew up. We all know that he was detained and charged. Charles rang me. Was there a girl anywhere about in this case? He asked. There ought to be. Privately, I did not expect this. A love affair was unlikely with this type of man. But one of the night porters put me in touch with a small pub quite close. I imagine that there must have been times when Hay tired of the oldish atmosphere of the Onslow Court, had possibly sneaked in there for a little relief. There was a young lady there, madam. He brought her back here one evening, the porter told me. I had considerable difficulty in finding her at the pub, and when I did find her, she was disappointingly reserved. Naturally, the whole affair had been a terrible shock to her, and she did not know what to make of it. She was unwed in the mid-thirties. She said that she had met him in the pub, and he was nice to her. He had a genius for charm, and she thought him dazzlingly good-looking. But then some women did. She warmed later, and told me things, but never what I sought from her. I understood that she was in love with the man, and did not believe a single word of the shocking evidence which had been brought against him. She thought that the whole trouble really lay with those awful old women in the hotel who simply would not let poor John alone. There could have been something in that, because lonely old women naturally welcome someone whose gaiety and apparent youthfulness is refreshing to them. Not that Hay was so young, but he had about him a certain youthful charm, which all these women found attractive. What was more, he knew how to use it. When I asked her with great care if she had ever thought of a future with this man, She closed up like a clam. Later I learned from another source that he had never asked her to marry him. Maybe he was too clever for that, but privately she had always hoped for it. It is just possible that even a man as callous as he was realized that no man is a successful husband whose profession is that of a murderer. It was a foregone conclusion that Hay would die when he was tried, and I think he knew himself that his number was on the board. One could not pity him. He had killed so that he himself should live comfortably, and he destroyed the very people who had trusted him. Killing in self-defense is excusable, but when it is committed for the daily bread and butter, maybe it is the most dastardly form of crime. Hay believed that there being no body... He burnt the bodies in an acid bath. There was no proof, and he had acted on this many times. I myself am sure he did so more often than was ever discovered. Could it be that when he tore up Mrs. Durand-Deacon's ration books, he had grown careless? His ignorance as to the effect of acid on plastic material was idiotic for a man who one presumes desired to preserve his own life or was it that he had used the same method so frequently that he believed himself to be dead safe? He received sentence of death calmly, and still with that same glitter in his eyes that I had noticed when we met. I thought of the poor girl in the pub. I felt that she was the only one who had never known him in quite the same way, but who had loved him. None of us could feel that he was innocent. There was no thought along that line. But did she still believe it? She was the one who mattered. In adieu to those who come after me down the street of adventure, there are one or two things that I would like to say with affection. The art of writing burns in you as an immortal flame. Even if you write tripe, the same flame lights that tripe because it is something that you cannot quench. It has got to light your path, otherwise you will never succeed. Never pay any attention to the scoffing of relatives, to the adulations of devoted friends, or to the warnings of the hardness of the way. The path is hard. It is so hard that sometimes looking back, I wonder how I tottered along it. But the flame and the longing and the wild, enthusiastic ambition were all I or you needed. Go to
0: it and good luck. Get your free, exclusive ebook of Ursula Bloom, A Life in Words by joining our Ursula Bloom Readers Club. The ebook contains the text of all five episodes of this podcast series. It's yours to keep when you sign up to the free email newsletter of the Ursula Bloom Readers Club. We'll send you news on special discounts and new releases, and we'll never share your details with anyone else. Sign up and get your free ebook today at ursulabloom.com forward slash readers. This episode was edited and produced by me, Ian Skillicorn, for Wyndham Audio. Ursula's words are read by Lisa Armitage. And that was the last episode in this series of A Life in Words, but keep an eye on our podcast feed because we'll be back later this year with a second series, this time on the life of best-selling author Naomi Jacob, as well as with more bonus content from Ursula Bloom. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this series, please do consider leaving us a positive review as it really helps us to spread the word. And you can find out more about the life of Ursula Bloom and where to buy her books from the official website, ursulabloom.com. Thanks for being with us through this series, and until next time, bye for now.